0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 200. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today's a compilation episode where we look back at the past eight years and 200 episodes. Enjoy this trip down memory lane with Archaeotech. Let's get to it.
2: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode one. On today's show, Doug and Russell talked to Stu Eve of LP Archaeology. Visit the show's website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Now, on to the show.
3: Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Russell. Hi, everybody. And we are talking with Stu Eve, who is from LP Archaeology, and he's going to be talking to us about Arc. Just to kick this off, Stu, can you tell us what Arc is?
4: Sure. Well, Arc is stands for the Archaeological Recording Kit. So I guess at its uh, at its heart, it's really a, a database system, which has a web-based front end, which allows archaeologists to record information. I suppose that's that's the sort of succinct there way. It's right. actually quite an important thing. And have you had people
3: take take arc modify it make plugins or anything or put back into it
4: we haven't directly had that in terms of people saying i've got a piece of code that i want to commit back but we have had a lot of projects where where they've said hey we want this particular thing and you know we've had a go at coding it and then you know we would come in and basically take that code and just clean it up a little bit before we put it back in there's been a there's been a few and, you know, have fun. That's the main thing. I take it when you guys learned,
3: were learning to code, you had a goal in mind? Or was this completely just play? You decided you kind of wanted to play around with this stuff and then eventually started developing stuff like Arc? Or did you, when you started learning, did you say, all right, we need to do this database, well, database platform. And what do we need to learn? How, how, how was that process?
4: <laughs> so- if you want the honest answer, I yes. did some stuff on Access um, back in the day and then we got a Server And we thought, oh, well, what would be great is if we could do this on the web, because then we would be able to share this stuff with everyone. And, every, you know, all the collaborators on the project could, could log in and it would be cool. Uh, how do we do that? We kind of looked around a bit at some stuff, started just typing some HTML. And then guys guy kind of came up one day and said, oh, I found this thing called PHP. I've been playing around with it. What do you think? And I had a look and I was like, oh, OK, that sounds quite cool. And that was basically <laughs> completely no plan. Planning whatsoever, just um, just you know went from there, and, and which is why it's taken whatever fourteen years to get to where it is. Wow! So it's basically. So you kind of
3: run a bit like Red Hat, and so for listeners who might not know, Red Hat is sort of a development or Ubuntu, which are Linux, so similar to Windows or Mac, but they're basically companies that give away all their software for free, but then charge for development or sort of other services. So that's uh, somewhat similar to how you guys run. Is that correct?
4: That's exactly right, yeah. So, I mean, basically, you should be able to download it and just use it if you've got someone who knows how to install things on a server, basically. I'm not saying that anyone can do it. You do need someone who knows how to install Apache and install MySQL, which is very easy to follow the instructions to do that. Yeah, and and then if you've got something a bit more bit more fancy you want i mean there's lots of documentation online about arc um there's a you know how to guides and there's you know how to do this how to fill in these particular things how to configure these files and everything but if you wanted to do something beyond that or if you're not really um completely tech savvy then we can come and come and help basically and that you, you can choose to to buy as much or as little of that as you want
3: brilliant well with that i think we'll probably end this part of the podcast Stuart, thank you for being on it was a pleasure You're welcome. and Thanks great to hear me. great to hear about arc hello and welcome to the Archaeotech podcast i'm your host
5: russell eileen willows today on the show my co-host doug rocks mcqueen and i will talk to lorna richardson a digital public archaeologist from the united kingdom about our research and work with outreach projects like the Day of Archaeology blogging event and much, much more.
1: My background originally for my undergraduate degree many, many years ago, bearing in mind I'm very old, was in archaeology. Um, I then went into community work um, in the charitable sector, never touched or was interested in computers whatsoever until the mid 2000s. And started to get into website stuff then. But it was only when I started working for LP Archaeology, who are a digitally focused archaeological, commercial archaeological organisation in East London, that I actually got completely and utterly obsessed by public archaeology and the internet, really. So I'm looking at public archaeology being a huge, all embracing umbrella term for how archaeologists communicate with the public whatever means so looking at public archaeology in the uk specifically and within that my research focused on four sort of broad brush organizational areas where archaeologists communicate online with the public the amorphous general public in universities hlf projects so i was looking at these four areas so looking at community archaeology groups universities, commercial archaeology organisations and um, HLF projects and looking at the sort of formats of communications that they were using and sharing online, why they were doing it, how they were doing it and then looking at more nuanced things that they were doing like were organisations subject to social media use policies within their organisations, did this prevent them communicating with the public any information about the work that they were doing? looking at concepts of things like archaeological expertise and how that's presented online, looking at how you would promote yourself as an archaeologist and how the anonymity of the internet supplies identity or not for you as a professional archaeologist and and how you can up or down that and how that works with the concept of authority and archaeological authority. I looked at crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, how we were using internet technologies to um, do things like the Day of Archaeology, so looking at large crowdsourced projects.
5: Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, Episode 8 for January 29, 2014. I'm your host, Russell Eileen-Willems. Today on the show, Chris Webster and I talk with Chris Cameron of Field Technologies Incorporated. Hi, good to
6: be here. Hey, me too. Good to be here. We're a technology company. We were founded by archeologists, for archeologists. We provide te- technical solutions to situations in the field. And the whole idea is to let archeologists do more digging and less paperwork. Our main product is a phase one shovel testing app called Archeogen. Basically what it does is it replaces your shovel test form on the front end. It's really designed to be productivity neutral in the field, though we have had positive feedback from people so far. And the real uh, real values on the back end, because all of your data will be compiled together from everybody, uh, you get nightly updates, and all of your data comes in a, a spreadsheet format in Excel, which means that it's searchable, sortable, whatever. But Excel also plays really well with other software, so you can import it to ArcGIS or you know just plop it into Google Maps, whatever you feel like.
5: You're kind of using the digital advantage to remove kind of the transcription back in that a lot of us have to do. When we get back from the field with, you know, a big sheaf of grubby shovel test forms. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I, I... so Chris, I had a question for you about a little bit of the design process mm-hmm. with your application. Is this something that you went and just kind of said, what's my dream application being an archaeologist out in the field? Or did you test it out with users? Have you gotten feedback on people using it across the different places you've been and you've sold the app to? Uh, I and another guy
6: who had originally been in archaeology, but then ended up going back to graduate school for database management, <laughs> was my original Very co-founder. True. He unfortunately decided to go a different way, so we have a, a different pool of ownership now. But the uh, the original idea was some years ago when we had worked together, we had said, this would be great if we had uh, back then a, a PDA or whatnot. This was you know back in the days before tablets. Good old Palm Pilot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Going around here somewhere yeah uh maybe in a museum the technology caught up and uh the fact that the gps uh in the apple products because it uses both glonass which is the russian constellation of satellites and the us gps satellites which android devices don't uh it's one of the reasons apple uh, yeah uh, there were a number of reasons why we went ios only Uh, that was one of them is that uh, it meant that we have a gps that we can consistently get five meter accuracy sometimes 10 under bad cover though with archaeogen every single point uh, every single shovel test has its own accuracy horizontal accuracy so if you get seven points that are out in ten two, and the rest aren't you can determine if the person dug it in the wrong place or if it was uh, bad data if you get trash data we want you to know so that's the, one of the fail safes we put in. That. another reason we use ios it's it's encrypted on you own know, the device you know the NSA was recently not very happy about that we do secure connection to our server which is secure and then we use a, an encrypted file encryption for getting the data to our clients so at every step of the way
0: hello and welcome to episode 13 of the ArchaeoTech podcast ipads in the field i'm your host chris webster We're going to talk about using iPads in the hot northern Mojave Desert on an actual project with the people that are using them. They've never used them this way and they've never used the software we're going to talk about either. It's a candid discussion of the technology and where it's going right and where it can improve. Let's get to the show. We're using Apple iPad Mini 3s with the retina display and fingerprint security. That should help identify the model. They're in a life-proof case and the app... Or apps that we're using for site recording and for forms, using an app called Tap Forms for iOS. It's only available for iOS. So the nice thing is you can create template forms, which I have stored on my computer, and I can just send those via email or message or whatever to the tablet, and then click on that and it opens in Tap Forms and creates everything. So it's kind of amazing that way. I'm also using uh, the other guys aren't so much an app called iAnnotate, and I've got all my project maps. We've got a 30,000 acre project and. All of the little parcels are split up into one by one mile sections and so each one of those I've got overview maps and then I've got a little section map for each different section that we're in that shows our our particular um, project area for that section. So I'm using that like normally crew chiefs would write on their maps with pencils and things like that and every few days out here it'd probably be every few hours you'd sweat through that map and have to get another one. Mm So, yeah, this is an advantage, uh, definitely having that, uh, so I can draw on it and do all of my transects and stuff like that.
7: Well, one of the biggest issues is because, and, I mean, this isn't going to be the case everywhere you walk in the United States, but out here where it's like 110 degrees, like, it overheats as you're standing in the sun, mm-hmm. and you got to actually worry pretty heavily about your shade and how you keep it out of the sun. Because the thing would just shut down, and you're in the middle of a form, you're like, okay, <laughs> awesome, back to paper, Chris. No.
0: <laughs> Any tablet with a glass screen is going to... Overheat quickly in just about any amount of sunlight, regardless of the ambient temperature. It help doesn't help if it's 110 degrees out, but even just sunlight on the glass at 85 degrees, it'll eventually overheat because of the way UV radiation in yeah, with exactly. glass. Exactly. So uh,
7: uh, one of the things though is like when a new technology, I don't see it as something that's gonna replace every piece of paper. I mean, because. I think I kind of see like a middle ground on this perspective in the way because like just even sitting at this coffee table here of Christmas I see like you know six books in front of me and it's not like digital information gets rid of every you know piece of paper that exists or the old form of technology I mean yeah. like just the way that like you know we all have mp3 players but sometimes we still get CDs and put them in our CD player you know like and though they I phase don't. out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you're an early adapter but yeah. Yeah. you know I mean it's going to be a slow process well, no. Finally, I think well, let's go, to, um, let's go down to
0: somewhat of the convenience, too. Um, Andrew was a, a big skeptic of the tablet early on, and I saw him just last week. Uh, finally, did you stop carrying your
8: massive I, binder? I, <laughs> I had a, a
0: beautiful uh, little <laughs> file box, really. It
8: was a clipboard that had a file box attached to it, and I'd... I'd had that all set up with little tabs for every single form. <laughs> and it was, like it was a great failed. system. And, and I'd, I'd learned it and kind of developed it over over the years of doing this. And it was a system that worked really, really well for me. And I I was skeptical for a few days that we actually would never carry paper into the field. And I carried this, this five-pound object <laughs> with me for... Kind of stubbornness. Week and, right. and finally gave it up, which yeah. you know, and and when you think about that, you know, there's there's less
0: weight you have to carry with you. Yeah, you know, there's, there's more, water you yeah, you, more water you can carry with you. Yeah, more water you can carry. More cinnamon toast crunch. Yeah. 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 <laughs> more, more cereal. I think that's a bigger conversation. <laughs> <Yeah. theory. laughs> Hey, archaeology podcast fans, anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARKPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome to episode 16 of the ArcheoTech podcast for November 2nd, 2015, and I'll be joined by a new co-host, Chris Sims. We're resurrecting this show from the dead just days after Halloween, and we're kicking it off with a gear review show. Let's get to the show. So we've got Chris Sims.
8: Yep. I'm also the uh, one of the co-hosts of a forthcoming podcast called the Go Dig a Hole podcast, and you can also check it out on our blog,
0: godigahole.com. Field power is the first thing we're going to discuss. This first one, I don't know if you're going to want to go and buy it or not. It's the Zag Spark, and it's Z-A-G-G-S-P-A-R-Q. I think they took a page out of Ikea's handbook there. Anyway, it's the Zag Spark 6000. 6000 stands for 6,000 milliamps, and... Let's talk about milliamps real quick. Think of milliamps as the size of the gas tank in your car. So, okay. That being said, the reason I hate this battery, it's my very first field battery, my very first external battery that I had. It's got good ports on it. They work well. I always forgot to shut it off, which was irritating. I like the newer ones that just shut off automatically and they turn on when you plug them in. But the biggest thing I hate about this is the flip out plugs. And if you look at the website, go to our show notes page and look at the picture of it. They're so ridiculous. They don't work. You try to plug this into the wall and the charging lights never light up. And you have to like set it down on a power strip and then put some weight on it and put some other stuff on it or find a nice tight plug that it'll take because the contacts inside just never work.
8: Yeah. So Shutterfly, I don't know how important it is for you to customize an external battery pack, but as a caveat, uh, my mom got this for me because she was tired of me getting back from international trips and giving her a quick phone call and saying, Hey mom, I'm back in the States. Uh, I'm alive. I still have you know, like eight hours to go before I'm home. My phone's about to die. That's all I have time up, oh, but phone's dead. Gotta go. So she got me this battery pack that has a picture of me and my lovely partner, Andy. So it's he, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> he means adorable. But uh, you could go to Shutterfly and get probably this same picture on your <laughs> battery pack.
0: iMac, take us out with a binary solo. All right. We're back. And after a sip of brandy and Benedictine, which I highly recommend in the cold fall days, uh, this
8: last segment of the show, we'll be covering our favorite apps. Uh, So I'll go ahead and get this one started off with uh, an app that I've used in the field and in my everyday life. It's really changed the way I deal with weather, which is one of our, uh, you know, Constantly changing variables. This thing's called Radar Cast Elite and it's available on the uh, iTunes store, the App Store, for $3.299. It is the most hands down accurate weather you can possibly get your hands on. It'll make weather underground and the weather.com apps just look like total garbage well, i'm going to yeah. talk
0: about one that i use a lot it has radar and stuff but really what i use it for is the push notifications and this is called dark sky because it knows where you're at and it will give me a push notification on my watch and on my phone that says rain starting soon or drizzle starting soon nice. it'll even tell me that it's ended you know if i'm like sitting in the house and i want to know hello and welcome to the Archaeotech podcast episode 24 Today I interview Michael Ashley of the Center for Digital Archaeology and we talk all things digital site recording. <laughs> Episode 24 is featuring Mr. Michael Ashley, co-founder of the Center for Digital Archaeology. Michael, how's it going?
5: It's going really well. We started the Center for Digital Archaeology back in 2011. We specifically were trying to help all of us who are in the realm of, of archaeology and CRM and culture heritage take good advantage of digital tools. The core things that we have been doing over the past five years have been about actually developing technologies, specifically a content management system that's open source called Mukudu CMS, which principally helps indigenous communities save, preserve, and share their digital culture and heritage. And we have a a web service that helps with that. And something called Codify,
0: which is our paperless collection, curate, and web platform. doing surveys why do I need to get some big complicated database? Why do I need to collect my data any differently than I've been doing it for the last 40 years? What's the big deal? I'm an archaeologist. Why do I need to do that?
5: So if we all think about the kinds of archaeology we do worldwide, so um, not to just focus on CRM. So let's talk about, quote, unquote, as I say, academic archaeology or research-based archaeology. The main job that I do, Chris, all the time is what we have now levelly called data therapy. Mm -hmm. So data therapy is we sit down and people say, okay, well, this is what we're trying to, this is what we've been doing for five years, 50 years, literally 150 years. Like back in when when Chicago was digging a site and say, Israel, yeah, this is what we've been doing forever. And we're still trying to find records that were done at the turn of the century to turn that into knowledge now in 2017, say. That's Mm -hmm. the idea. What we want to be able to do is have everything that's ever been said about this site, not just the site because the site boundaries change over time. But the area, the place, the survey, ceramics, human remains, whatever it might be, at our fingertips in real time so that we can actually make better decisions in the field and we can tell better stories down the line.
0: Okay, I'm here with the, I think, first ever live interview for the Archaeotech podcast, aside from some small conference stuff we've done. And I'm here with uh, Peter Wigand.
9: As a kid, I used to... Look for arrowheads. It uh, interest developed into wanting to go do it as a career, potentially. I went up to the University of Washington as an uh, undergraduate and started out in anthropology. I was going to do Middle Eastern archaeology. Uh, the person who was teaching Middle Eastern archaeology actually left, and it, I ended up doing Mesoamerican archaeology. Mm-hmm. I
0: have a feeling that a lot of CRM archaeologists in particular might think that pollen analysis is simply just counting things and determining what plants were there but there's there's a lot that you can tell from exactly what plants were there at a certain you know a certain level and, and, and certain quantities and things like that so in that respect tell us about some of the work you've done in Italy
9: Italian work I started was about uh, five years ago I was invited by one of my graduate students to join a group of Canadian and British archaeologists in southern Italy mm-hmm. who were doing uh, work on a Uh, Augustan Villa, believe it or not, (laughs) that was owned by a slave, one of his slaves during the lifetime of the slave and then reverted back to Augustus after the death of the slave. What's fascinating about this area is that it's always been a crossover area between many cultures. 2500 years ago as the Iron Age peoples were moving south into the heel and toe of Italy, we had uh, Oskins who were italic-speaking peoples coming down the coast in the west, and then we had people coming across from the Balkans who were Albanian-speakers. There's speakers, some pollen preservation. preservation there, but I thought it would be really nice to put the villa into a regional pollen context, a veg- vegetation context, because we're talking about an area that some people have suggested the region was in fallow, in the words that had it been abandoned, the agricultural mm. lands? Other people say no, it hadn't been, and so forth. So we were interested in trying to decide what was going no, on. So. Yeah, we, we were looking at the correlation that we found between the alluvial record and the erosion model that I've done with climate, mm-hmm. and the fact that we could actually put human impact into the model as well by doing a uh, GIS overlay of this archaeological survey data mm-hmm. within the region, showing where people were... Living and what they were doing, and literally putting that superimposing that on the geology. And uh, when people moved into sensitive areas off of areas that are resistant, then what we can show is that there's an increase in the erosion rate as well. Mm -hmm. So we can use that as sort of a transfer function to let's say uh, uh, make the model more precise Mm -hmm. to predict erosion rates.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 42. I'm your host Chris Webster with my co-host Chris Sims. On today's show, we get into the annual holiday episode and talk about gifts for archaeologists.
8: <laughs> but then they've got like the Sunto MC2G compass, which mm-hmm. is an orienteering compass. It's awesome, but it's a hundred dollars at REI, and I was like, trusty standby Silva Ranger. That's like thirty-five bucks. The the books, the eBooks, and stuff like that.
0: Well, first off, you get a certain number of um, eBooks from Amazon. I think it's probably like one a month or something. And they had a display for a thing called the chill out buddy. Honestly, they look like huge hot dogs, <laughs> but, uh, they're these, <laughs> that's what they
8: look like. Definitely. Like gift cards are always a good idea. Things like hammocks are usually popular, but then also there's like camping equipment, especially like cook sets are super useful. I've had a cook set. It's, uh, from snow peak It's titanium, so it's super lightweight, incredibly strong. You are
2: listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for supporting us.
0: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 56. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my special co-host today, Richie Cruz. On today's show, we talk about the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference and what it means or what it doesn't mean for archaeology. Let's get to it. Richie's a long-time uh, field tech, worked all over the country, a lot in the west here. He worked with me uh, a couple of years ago in in California. We're recording this on Friday, June but 9th. I think that's part of the problem with Apple though. I feel like in the olden days, they used to be known as like if you were a graphic artist or a video right. editor. But now you can do that on any computer. <laughs> what we're looking at here is what's the easiest, simplest solution for a CRM firm of any size to set up. I'd rather buy something right out of the gate that doesn't need a lot of maintenance for a number of years, just works, and take that money and spend it on something else to bring it back to WWDC. But they showed augmented reality. There was a big table sitting on the uh, stage, and then they were using an iPad Pro with a new chip in it that you can buy now today. Um, I've got an iPad Pro 12.1 inch, but it doesn't have the brand new chip in it. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the ArcheoTech podcast, episode 58. On today's show, I talk to the creators of WildNote, a form generation and field data collecting application. Let's get to it. Kristen Hazard and Nancy Douglas. Welcome to the show.
10: So my name is Kristen Hazard. I'm the founder and CEO of WildNote. And WildNote came out of my work at an environmental consulting firm, actually. Probably about five, six years ago, I had started a software consulting company and at the same time became a principal in a small environmental consulting company. So I was kind of doing two things. And through that, I actually ended up building a similar app for pg and for all of their compliance reporting. So my background is really varied. I have a mechanical engineering degree from Cal Poly. And then from there, I got a law degree. Nice. <laughs> and then as I was waiting for my bar results, I got hired to be a programmer.
0: All right. well, Nancy, what's your uh, what's your story?
10: What's my story? Well, it's nowhere near as exciting as Kristen's story. So, <laughs> what I bring to the table for Kristen, and I, I'm the sales director for Wild Note, and I love connecting with people and learning about what they're doing. And I'm just all just always interested in learning something new.
0: Yeah, and between hiking, drinking, and report writing, it's hard for archaeologists <laughs> to get anything done. So,
10: <laughs>
11: <laughs>
10: kind of yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's your grand vision for this?
10: We'd like to revolutionize environmental compliance monitoring and reporting, basically. That's the big, big picture. And mm-hmm. what we see is a lot of these paper-based processes, so paper out in the field, then then bring it into Word, and then maybe turn it into PDF, and then maybe email it to the appropriate stakeholders. All of it, sort of, whether it's digital paper or real paper, these inefficient paper-based processes. And we see that, wow, we could go electronic from beginning to end, right? So Mm -hmm. digital field data collection, back at the office, editing through the web app, it's still in a... A relational database and easy to edit and easy to have everything in one place, and then eventually exporting to these various agencies and stakeholders electronically as well, creating massive efficiencies, less hassle, headache, that sort of thing, and hopefully saving everybody money, which everybody can get behind. Environmental compliance being more efficient and less expensive. Feel mm-hmm. free to go onto WildNoteApp.com and try it out. We would love to welcome you into the WildNote family and to get your feedback on how we can make this the very best tool for this um, particular group.
0: Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, the show where archaeology and technology come together. This is episode 61, and I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Wait, what? Who the hell is Paul Zimmerman? Find out on today's episode. We'll also talk about recent updates to Apple Maps and the note-taking app Notability in the App of the Day segment. Let's get to it. Okay. Welcome to the ArcheoTech podcast. We've got a new co-host today. Paul, how's it going?
2: That's pretty good. How you doing? Good. First off, how long have you been listening to the ArcheoTech podcast? I've been listening to it for about a year, year and a half, I think, as well as some of the other APN podcasts, but that's mm-hmm. the one that I really gravitated to. What brings you to this field? Let's say that uh, I'm an interested amateur, but um, I'm an amateur with a PhD in the field. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, I met up with one of my old buddies uh, that I used to do field work with uh, last Christmas time, and and he described himself as an ex archaeologist. And I thought, oh, I can't quite call myself that anymore. <laughs> um, I, the ex part doesn't uh, didn't sit right with me.
0: You mentioned that when you were doing uh, archaeology that you were kind of on the tech side of things. What was tech like Jesus 17 years ago when uh, when you were working
2: in archaeology? Like what kind of stuff were you working with on on that side? The main project that we had was at Masca, um, Bill Fitz and I, he's a European archaeologist. He and I were in charge of programming something that we called Sitemap. And it was a suite of programs that we used for uh, for surveying with uh, with total stations. Bill was on the data collection side of it, and I was on the data plotting side of it. So we had you know laptops, uh, power books at the time, I think, that we would run, Minicad, then Vectorworks uh, for the plotting uh, custom program that we wrote. Wrote on um, Corvallis MC5 data collectors, mm-hmm. and basically we'd set up with these total stations and uh, and map in entire sites or map in objects found in trenches or whatever was necessary for the given site. On
0: today's show, we explore the possibility of remote working in contract archaeology. Believe me, it's possible. So. Dump the office and let's get to it.
2: Because I do a lot of network admin, I have to frequently stay up late at night when something goes kablooey and remote in and do my work on our servers as if I were physically at the space. But when I'm actually sitting up in the living room, <laughs>
0: the uh, first question you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about telecommuting or you're thinking about if you're an office manager, you're running the, sh- running the office or running the company. And you're thinking about setting this up for your employees is, is, can you do it? And can everybody do it? The thing I think about is, what are the physical things I need to interact with at the office that would cause me to be at the office, right? Episode 94. Today, we discuss chatbots as agents of cultural outreach.
2: So, Dr. Gonzalez-Tenet, thanks for coming on ArcPod. Jeez. Uh, ArcPod, <laughs> I'm reading my name instead of... Uh, okay. <clears throat> Episode 104, I get the joy of interviewing Dr. Edward Gonzalez Tenet.
0: Episode 108. Today, we talk to Simon Young of Lithodomos VR. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 113. Today, we talk to Zach Beyer about his work in Jamaican archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 124. Today, we discuss working remotely and the impacts of the coronavirus and the impending zombie apocalypse on archaeology. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the ArcheoTech Podcast, episode 130. Today we talk computational archaeology with Dr. Isaac Eula. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the ArcheoTech Podcast, episode 132. Today we discuss incorporating archaeology into gaming with guest Amanda Gomez.
2: Let's get to it. Hi there! Welcome to the Architect Podcast, episode one forty nine. This is your host, this episode, Paul Zimmerman, and uh, today we have a special guest co-host, Eric Olson. Uh, we're going to drive this right off the tracks, I'm sure. But uh, today's <laughs> conversation, <laughs> if you've been, if you're a regular listener, this is episode one forty nine. The previous episode, one forty eight, Eric was our uh, our guest. How do you deal with actually starting on tech? Because so many of the different tech kind of projects that you see. What you see is something that somebody has gotten to a certain point at that they're, that they're very adept at. And so that, that barrier to entry, you look at it and you think, oh, I could never do that. And it's yeah, I'm
5: just thinking about technology and how we can get people to be less scared of it and more willing to learn how cool and
0: efficient it can make your workflow and make research better. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 168. Today we discuss Paul's recent trip to Iraq and his experiences doing drone photogrammetry while he was there. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 171. Today we discuss archaeological radiography with James Elliott. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 172. Today we talk to Dr. Cora Wolseley, the founder of Archaeosoft and creator of the field data collection application Stratum. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 175. Paul's in Iraq, so today I talk to Brian Fritz, inventor of a mechanized archaeological digging machine called Paleo Digger. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 181. Today, we discuss the gamification of education with J.D. Calvelli. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 183. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my temporary co-host, Edward Gonzalez-Tennant. Today, we talk about what Ed's been up to lately and where he's going next fall. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the ArcheoTech Podcast, episode 186. Today, I bring on a guest to talk about field safety tech. Let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 197. Today we talked to Chelsea Colwell Posh about a mechanical auger for archaeological perspection that she invented. Let's get to it. All right, Chelsea, welcome to the show.
11: Thank you so much, Chris and Paul. I am so excited to be here.
0: I expected you to say longtime listener, first-time interviewee. Just because, you know,
11: (laughs) absolutely. I am uh, just fangirling here and uh, really just really excited to be here. I, I listen to you guys all the time. I have a commercialized apparatus that uses an encased auger using our committee screw that I apply for archaeological prospection for probabilistic sampling so or test pinning on a grid mm-hmm. so if, if the sediments are deeper than 1.2 meters I can't convert that for you. I am so sorry. Uh, I am metric all the way, uh, but
5: if we feet.
11: can't, yeah, it's eleven feet. If we can't, yeah, I don't think it's eleven feet. Um, <laughs> right, it's
0: not eleven feet.
11: Wow. <laughs> it's
0: three feet um, eleven inches. I didn't read the whole thing. Yeah, three okay,
11: feet. <laughs> it's almost four feet. It's really, really deep. Can, consistent. That's another wonderful thing about this: is every test pit is literally the same size. Mm, every yeah. test pit. There's there's not going to be a variation between, you know, Jimmy and and Bob, who dig fifty centimeter test pits, but Bob's is fifty five and Jimmy's is thirty seven. But you know, we're going to get a really consistent probabilistic sampling yeah. grid. Yeah.
0: Or the shapes where one's a bathtub and one's a point, right? Some people can <laughs> take good holes and some people can't.
11: That's right. And you have you always have that one tech that just takes so much pride in their work that you could you could literally, you know, put that their test pit on the cover of your of your report, and then there's the other guys who are just like, like you don't know if they were trying to no. bury a body over the weekend or like
3: <laughs> right.
2: Thanks for listening to the architect podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Contact us at Chris at Archaeology podcast Network.com and Paul at Lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
4: Every time.
7: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
2: ba ba
11: So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out